This evening we're going to consider Abraham or Abram rescues Lot. Abraham rescues Lot, looking at the whole of Genesis chapter 14, verses 21, sorry, 1 to 24. By way of recap, in Genesis chapter 13, we saw that as a consequence of there being disputes between Abraham's herdsmen and his nephew Lot's herdsmen, Abraham and his nephew parted company, not willing that there should be strife between the herdsmen and also strife between Abraham and Lot. Abraham gave his nephew the choice of where to live and Lot chose the well-watered plain of Jericho, uh, sorry, Jordan, to the east, towards Sodom. As for Abraham, he dwelt in the plain of Mamre in Canaan, where he built an altar to the Lord, as can be seen in the last verse of chapter 13 there. Have a look at the last verse of chapter 13. Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built built there an altar unto the Lord. The building of an altar unto the Lord speaks of Abraham having sweet fellowship with God, who called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia and gave him the promise that in him and in his seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Even so, there would in time to come be more strife, not between any herdsmen, but between warring kings with Abraham, or Abraham, sorry, Abraham getting involved. I guess that goes to show us really that even when we have this lovely fellowship with the Lord, we're worshipping God, we're not immune to having difficulties and battles in this world. And we all know as Christians that even though we have this wonderful fellowship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we do have a daily battle with sin. First of all, we can consider the battle of four kings against five other kings, resulting in the taking of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Look again at verses 1 through to 3 in chapter 14. We're going to see four kings in chapter in, in verse 1 and then another five kings in verse 2. And it came to pass in the days of Amaraphel, king of Shinar, and uh, Arioch, king of Elasar, and Kedor Laoma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, and Shemeba, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. So you see there, verse 1, that lists five kingdoms of the east. You may recall that Shinar, Shinar is one of the kingdoms there in verse 1. I don't know if Shinar rings any bells for you. When we were looking at chapter 11, when the people 
they, they, they went somewhere and that somewhere was Shinar and they built for themselves a city and they also built a tower um, reaching up to the heavens that it may reach into heaven. However, the Lord came down and confused their language and scattered them abroad upon the face of the earth. So it's that Shinar, it's in the east, Babylonia, that area, that region, and we see that Shinar is together with three other kingdoms there and it will wage battle. It will go to war with the five kingdoms that are listed in verse 2. Five kingdoms including Sodom and Gomorrah. The five kingdoms or regions of Canaan, which are listed there in verse 2, had been in subjection to the Babylonian kings of verse 1 for 12 years. We see that in verse 4 there. 12 years they serve Kedorlaomer and in the 13th year they rebelled. It would appear from verse 4 that Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, which is Persia, took charge of the expedition of the four kings of the east against the five Canaanite kings. Apparently it was of the utmost, I say apparently, this is what I read in the commentaries, apparently it was of the utmost importance to Elam to keep the Jordan Valley free and open on account of it being a trade route to Egypt with all that intercourse in commerce meant to those eastern lands. It was an important trade route for them. And that would explain why the five kingdoms of verse 2 were subject to the four eastern kingdoms of verse 1. However, after the 12 years of subjection, the five kings rebelled and that resulted in a battle being fought at the Vale of Siddim, which according to verse 3 is the Salt Sea, otherwise known as the Dead Sea. We're not to imagine that the battle of the kings took place in the middle of that vast lake, the Dead Sea. However, it had become precisely that by the time Moses wrote Genesis. It was by that time the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. In the ensuing battle, the five kings were defeated and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled to the mountain. As for the victorious four kings, their plunder or their booty included Abraham's nephew Lot. As it's written in verses 11 and 12, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way and they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. What can be said about Lot? Lot, who chose, when he was given the choice by his uncle in the previous chapter, he chose, he looked and he saw the the well-watered plains of Jordan and that's it, that's where he chose to go, towards Sodom. So what can be said about him? One might be inclined to be of the same opinion as some of the commentators who say that Lot had it coming to him. Serves him right for making selfish 
uh, making the selfish choice to travel east to the well-watered plains of uh, Jordan and pitching his tent towards Sodom. Who can argue with that opinion? Maybe you're of that opinion. It serves him right. It was only a matter of time that something would happen to him. Also, there are those who point out that from initially pitching his tent towards Sodom, we now see in chapter 14 and verse 12 that Lot lived in the land. From from living in the plains towards Sodom, we see in verse 12 that he was in Sodom amongst exceedingly wicked people. As such, one might say that he was asking for trouble. That as may be, but chapter 14 doesn't say anything about Lot's poor choices, if they were indeed poor choices. And it doesn't say anything about his just deserts, that it served him right when he was taken captive by the five victorious kings. What we can read, however, in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, is that Lot is described as just or righteous. And we're told in that verse, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that he, that is Lot, was vexed with the filthy conversation or the filthy behaviour of the wicked. I think most, if not all of us, know something of the wickedness of the Sodomites. Even before we get to chapter 19, we will eventually get there, God willing, chapter 19, and we'll read uh, about the, the exceeding wickedness of the Sodomites. Their wickedness was seen in their violent lust for unnatural sexual, sexual gratification and righteous Lot was vexed. He was distressed with the filthy behaviour of the Sodomites in whose land he lived. Let's make some application to us. Only last week, this island home of ours openly celebrated homosexual perversion, otherwise known as gay pride. We live in the midst of wickedness, exceeding wickedness, And I made the decision 12 years ago to come and live in this land amongst the wicked people of this land. I pitched my tent in this, in this wicked land 12 years ago. So I'm inclined to go easy on righteous Lot. As for Lot being taken captive, what can most certainly be said is that the Lord's people need not expect any special favours in times of war. If anything, the righteous can be expected to be targeted more than anyone else. Why would that be? Because they belong to Jesus. Jesus, whom this world hates. For that reason alone, the, the, those who belong to Jesus can expect to be targeted in times of war. Dear Christian, unless God calls you to live alone on a desert island, you will inevitably live amongst wicked people. But that presents wonderful opportunities to be a light in a dark place. 
and to let your light so shine before men that they may, may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Being a light includes standing up against error. It means fearlessly confessing divine truth, making a stand for that truth under all circumstances and being ready to bear ridicule, slander, loss and persecution of all kinds for Christ's sake. We'll now look at Abraham's intervention when his nephew Lot was taken captive by the five victorious kings. We'll look again at verses 13 through to 16. And there came one that had escaped and told Abraham, the the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anah, and these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Up until now, we've seen Abraham as a man of peace. That certainly is how he comes across in the previous chapter when he gave uh, Lot the choice. If you go to the right... I go to the left, if you go to the left, I go to the right. I'm leaving it up to you. Do what you want. And Lot, again, Lot chose the well-watered plains of the Jordan. Abraham was acting in in a manner then which restored peace between herdsmen. Well, the, the separation, it restored peace. He was a man of peace there. As was suggested last week, Abraham could have pulled rank, one would have thought so anyway, he could have pulled rank with his nephew and not given him the choice. But he didn't. He chose to give Lot the choice. Anyway, if Abraham was seen to be a man of peace in chapter 13, we now see him to be a man of war in chapter 14. As a result of hearing from an escaped prisoner that his nephew Lot had been taken captive, he armed 318 trained servants and they pursued the enemy as far as Dan. That's right to the north of Canaan. What cannot be seen in Abraham is any evidence of him harbouring any bitterness towards his nephew Lot for having chosen to travel east to the well-watered plains of Jordan. He could have easily said, well, I guess it serves him right for living in Sodom. But he didn't do that. Instead, he mobilised his servants and he went to rescue Lot. Therefore, what can be seen in Abraham, the peacemaker, is bravery. Also, having divided his men up in order to attack the enemy from different angles, from different directions, he showed himself to have a strategic mind. 
He was clearly a leader of men and a very successful one at that. When you look at verse 16, look at it again. He brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So that's Abraham, 318 men against the four victorious kings. I don't know how many king, how many men, how many soldiers the four kings had. We needn't think of those four kings of having kingdoms uh, as of in like by today's standards. They were just regions, even cities. We see that with Shinar, for example, in verse one, and Raphael, king of Shinar. Well, Shinar was a city. But even so, that's, that takes some doing, doesn't it, for Abraham and his trained men to defeat those four kings and to bring back Lot and all the others. How can we account for Abraham being fearlessly brave and active as well as being passive? Passive in chapter 13, fearlessly brave, heroic in chapter 14. It has to be acknowledged that there are many people who display great bravery for the sake of others. And these people who show great bravery, they're not always Christians, are they? Uh, A lot of these people, they don't necessarily have any faith in God. They have no interest in the Saviour. And yet they do show great bravery for the sake of others. However, when it comes to Abraham, he most certainly was a man of faith in God. And we can be sure that he was looking to the Lord who had called him, who had given him the promises to equip him with a holy boldness and to give him the victory. And the Lord did give him the victory. We see that very clearly. We'll come to, um, come to it in a short while. Um, Yeah, in verse 20, where Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, look at verse 20 there, he blessed, he said, Blessed be the Most High God, which have delivered thine enemies into thy hand. So there's, it's very clear that the Lord God gave Abraham the victory. And it's reasonable to say that Abraham was looking to God to give him the victory. It can be seen that Abraham had the Lord and his glory in his thoughts, in his prayers, in that after his victorious battle, he told the king of Sodom that he lifted up his hand unto the Lord. We see that in verse 20 there, verse 22. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I I have lifted up mine hand, unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Where it says that Abraham lifted up his hand unto the Lord, that means he swore unto the Lord. Abraham lifted up his hand unto the Lord to the end that he would not be seen by the king of Sodom, by the world to have been nothing more than a mercenary seeking to profit from war and seeking to enrich himself. For Abraham, the honour and glory of God 
were of paramount importance. Consequently, he declined to take any of the spoils of war, when in verse 21, the king of Sodom said to him, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Take the spoils of war to thyself. Abraham declined to take the spoils of war. Last of all, Abraham received a visit from Melchizedek, king of Salem, verse 18 through to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which have delivered thine enemies into thine hand, thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. In these verses we can see that a priest whose name was Melchizedek, king of Salem, came to Abraham after his victory in the battle over the uh, battle against the four kings. There's just one other verse in the whole of the Old Testament where Melchizedek receives a mention, and that is Psalm 110 and verse 4, where it is written, The Lord have sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I wonder who the Lord was speaking about there in Psalm 110 verse 4. I'll read it again. The Lord have sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That verse is particularly important when you consider that in the New Testament epistle to the Hebrews, we are informed that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In fact, much of what I'm about to say is in light of what is revealed in the epistle to the Hebrews concerning Melchizedek the priest of the Most High God, and how that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those of you who have been attending recent Bible studies at this church will now, no doubt be very familiar with what I'm about to say. When you consider his name, we'll look at it again there, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, Melchizedek means king of righteousness and Salem means peace. Therefore, not only was Melchizedek a priest of the Most High God, he was also king of righteousness and king of peace. That perfectly describes the Lord Jesus Christ because to know Jesus as your saviour from sin is to have the righteousness of God and not some worthless self-righteousness of your own. Jesus is your righteousness, if you belong to him. Also, to trust in Jesus is to have the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. Through faith in his perfect obedience to God's law, and also his self-sacrifice at the cross, where he has made peace between you and God by the blood of his cross, if indeed you are trusting in him. 
Many people in the world may claim to have peace, even though they're far from God. People claim to have peace, although they're separated from God by their sins. And what happens when difficulties, traumatic experiences, sorrows, pain arrives? What happens to that peace that they claim to have? It evaporates. It disappears. Also, there are many people who imagine that they haven't been too bad. They've done, they haven't really done anything particularly wrong. And essentially, they justify themselves and they depend upon their own self-righteousness to enter into the presence of a holy and righteous God. However, the Bible teaches that there is none righteous, no, not one, that all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Does your conscience trouble you as a result of your failure to love God as you ought to, your failure to love your neighbour as yourself? Then ask God to be merciful to you. Believe on his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of righteousness, the King of peace. God will hear your cry and he will save you by his grace. Amen.